Welcome back to eConversations with Nave. Today's episode is a webinar replay of the June 29th webinar on why economic data is seasonally adjusted. Seasonality is a common feature of economic data, and if not properly addressed, it can cloud our judgment about what the data are telling us. Seasonal adjustment methodologies have been developed to remove these predictable patterns to reveal the underlying trend and cycle. When is seasonal adjustment appropriate? What are the best methods? What are the pitfalls and challenges in analyzing seasonal and seasonally adjusted data? Over the next hour, the session will look at these issues from a user's perspective to help develop a deeper appreciation for working with economic indicators. The session is moderated by Maureen Haber, CBE, founder and president of Haber Analytics. Maureen, take it away. Welcome everyone to our second bootcamp webinar in preparation for the economic measurement seminar, which we will have, as Caitlin told you, on the 17th and 18th of July. Um, as we planned the very first EMS in Kissimmee, Florida, 20 years ago, we decided there were three key things that people needed to know in advance of the seminar. One was they should understand the federal statistical system. They should know how indexes are constructed. And they should understand why US statistical agencies headline seasonally adjusted data. So to address the third question, we have Adaman Azildiram, adjunct professor at Boston College. Um, until just a few weeks ago, he was senior director of the economic research and global research chair at the conference board. In this role, he specialized in the development of business cycle indicators and forecasts of aggregate economic activity worldwide. Now, research on seasonal adjustment started at the National Bureau of Economic Research in the 1920s, before the advent of computers. You can understand it must have been very important to them that they did this work by hand, um, really onerous calculations, because they felt it was very important. And Ottoman's going to share with us today why it's very important for all the work that economists do. Ottoman? Thank you, Maureen. Thanks for the kind introduction there. Um, I'm uh, very happy to return uh, to talk about uh, business cycles and uh, seasonal adjustments. Um, and I didn't realize that uh, this was going to be the 20th anniversary of the NAVE EMS. Uh, so it's a special year, um, and uh, we've been uh, we've been having these uh, discussions for a few years, Maureen. But I think every year there is something interesting and different uh, to talk about, um, and uh, that's that's how business cycles are. So they they keep us on our toes and uh, uh, very stimulating conversations. So let me see if I can uh, share some slides with you here. Um, and 
should be should be able to see that. Okay. Um, yeah, it looks like you can see this. Um, so hopefully this will um, uh, warm you up and whet your appetite for the EMS to come later this summer. Um, and I think it's a great way to uh, start to uh, really understand and make sense of all the great uh, economic data that uh, statistical agencies are putting out there. Um, and um, we'll begin by uh, talking about business cycles and why the problem of seasonality is really important to address to uh, be better at uh, measuring and analyzing business cycles. Uh, so that's the really short-term fluctuations that, that we're interested in. We'll spend a little bit of time on uh, how seasonal adjustment methods work. Uh, this is not a technical session and uh, BLS and other statistical agencies around the world have uh, great information about seasonal adjustment methods. Uh, this is a literature that continues to grow and evolve. And I don't think we can do justice to that you know, in an hour, um, but uh, I'll provide some resources and references that folks can uh, take advantage of uh, on your own time. But we'll be uh, getting into some of the, the conceptual background in terms of uh, how the methods uh, work. And, and then uh, that'll help us to talk about some of the potential pitfalls as uh, we model and do real-time analysis on uh, economic data. Um, so I uh, have been looking at business cycles for over uh, two decades uh, at the conference board. We developed a number of leading indicators, composite indicators, uh, and I kind of bring a perspective both from the users of seasonally adjusted data and also uh, a producer, a, a data producer. So um, uh, with that, I want to share with you uh, some of the important elements in business cycle analysis uh, and the data that, that we use. It's always good to start uh, with a definition. And whenever you look at uh, business cycles, um, uh, we go back to the work of uh, Burns and Mitchell uh, in the 1920s, 1930s, uh, which really is the seminal work to, uh, to put business cycles on the map. Um, and in free enterprise market economies, um, uh, analysts, policymakers, uh, business leaders have been uh, seeing and noticing uh, recurrent uh, fluctuations. But until the, the work of uh, Burns and Mitchell, this really didn't get codified. Um, and uh, this is a very common definition that uh, we still refer to. Um, and uh, after looking at um, uh, all the available data, essentially at that time in uh, early 20th century, um, uh, Burns and Mitchell and other MBER researchers um, uh, found that um, the recurrent expansions and contractions would occur about the same time in many different economic activities. And that's really the core of their, uh, their definition. Um, expansions are followed by recessions or contractions. And then those are again uh, followed by recoveries and expansions in the next cycle. So these sequences uh, are recurrent, but they're not periodic. 
Um, and that makes it very difficult to predict them. And um, Burns and Mitchell's work really codified the parameters about what we think of as business cycle frequencies. And so they vary from one year to 10 or 12 years, but they're not divisible into shorter cycles uh, that have similar characteristics. Um, so this is the, the definition that business cycle uh, economists um, are really um, having in the back of their mind as they study economic data. And here's a, a graphically abstract view of the business cycle. The economy grows over time. There's a long-term secular trend that rises over time. And uh, variables uh, are following that trend, but occasionally they go through expansions and contractions. Now further, uh, uh, the business cycle research uh, distinguished uh, timing in these uh, uh, various uh, variables. Um, and uh, while uh, the expansions and uh, recessions are alternating, they're delineated by um, business cycle turning points or peaks and troughs in the business cycle. So a peak is the end of an expansion and beginning of a recession, and a trough is the end of a recession and beginning of the next expansion. And in this uh, stylized chart, you see the business cycle peak BCP, um, and uh, BCT is, a, is the trough, right? Um, that's defined by the coincident indicators that move in tandem with the cycle. Now, we can also identify leading indica indicators that anticipate the turning points. So the peaks and troughs and leading indicators come in advance of the business cycle peak and trough. So that's a little bit of a business cycle uh, lesson there, but uh, that uh, gets us started to start thinking about um, real-time economic data. So it never looks as abstract and clean as uh, this graph is, is showing you. It gets a lot more complicated, um, but uh, over the years, um, uh, almost all the available macroeconomic data indicators have been classified as coincident leading or some, in some cases lagging. Um, and they can be grouped in you know, various categories from labor markets to output and production to demand side, supply side variables, and even financial variables, money, credits, uh, and other things. So these are all uh, various categories of indicators that can be classified to um, help us think about the cycle in terms of these timing relationships that you see here. Now, the indicator approach that's used in business cycle analysis, takes a lot of that data and looks at the recurring sequences um, that really pop out after you spend some time looking at the data. And uh, we begin to see that there are uh, sequences that are uniform um, and uh, they, they happen over time, expansions, recessions, uh, they uh, follow each other over decades. But the key thing in the business cycle indicator approach is that as economists and analysts, we're interested in the relationship between the cyclical part of the data. We're not interested in sort of uh, irregular movements or movements that can be easily predicted like uh, seasonal 
uh, movements. So those sequences are revealed in seasonally adjusted data, which is the topic of this uh, uh, webinar today. And then once seasonally adjusted, the classification into coincident leading and lagging becomes much more uh, easier, helping us with the analysis of those relationships. Um, now, composite indexes of the many variables that you see within these categories help us to define and then predict turning points. Now, composite indexes aggregate various uh, different types of economic data, economic indicators, and um, the, the index uh, is more useful than uh, the raw data or the component data that's uh, a, a part of the composite index to uh, delineate the expansion recession periods and look at those turning points. So if you're really interested in turning points, composite indexes are very important in your toolkit. So um, regular uh, cycles are an enduring feature of economic data. This goes back centuries, really. Um, and we've observed that some of those cycles are more regular than others meaning that some of those cycles that we see in economic data can be easily predicted. Here's another quote from uh, my uh, late colleague, Victor Zarnowitz. Um, and he says that the recurrent slumps in business cycles uh, that create, generate declines in sales, production, and incomes and employment um, it are really important from the uh, point of view of you know, public interest, policy debates, business decision-making. These are recurrent and they can be very costly in terms of their business, uh, economic and social costs. Those are the things that we're really interested in. Um, and uh, therefore we want to abstract away from the irregular movements and the movements that are predictable um, and the movements at the top of movements that are easily predicted are the seasonal fluctuations uh, in the data. And we see seasonal fluctuations in all types of different economic data. There are some exceptions. Uh, we'll have an example, example coming up for that. But um, uh, what we're really talking about with seasonal fluctuations is the intra-year variation that occurs on or about the same time uh, each calendar year. It may not be always very regular, but they are easily predictable because they're closely tied to the, the calendar. And uh, this is also a feature of high frequency data. Um, you don't see as much seasonality in, um, uh, you know, let's say less seasonality perhaps in quarterly data, which is more aggregated from weekly or monthly data. And then you don't see it in annual data because the annual data aggregates together the intra-year variation. So year to year, you're really uh, looking at the structural variation in the economic data and you're looking at the long-term sort of uh, uh, secular trends, um, but the seasonality doesn't show up in annual data. But whenever we're looking at uh, weekly, monthly, or quarterly data, then we see this intra-year variation. And those variations are usually uh, caused by exogenous uh, factors uh, like the seasons, um, uh, winter, spring, or institutions, uh, institutional uh, framework like tax season, let's say. There are also holidays that are tied to the calendar, um, like Christmas 
Christmas, Easter, Ramadan, Chinese New Year. Um, those are the sort of most common ones around the world. Um, they either show up at specific points in time in the calendar or around a, a certain season. Um, or if they're based on the lunar calendars, uh, like uh, Ramadan or Chinese New Year, they might move throughout the, the uh, solar calendar. And that presents a whole other uh, set of issues for estimating seasonal factors. Um, but because of this uh, exogeneity in the causes of the seasonal fluctuation, there is some regularity and that makes it easy to predict uh, those uh, seasonal uh, fluctuations. And once we take away the seasonality in the data, the uh, business cycle turning points become much more easily identifiable. And um, business cycle tools that we use, uh, composite indexes, um, become uh, uh, really much more easier to use well-articulated turning points uh, to uh, to analyze uh, what the short-term trends are uh, in the data. Okay. Um, so here's an example from stock markets where we don't see seasonality. Uh, generally, seasonality is not a feature in stock market data. Um, and the, the basic explanation for that is that, you know, if there are regularly predictable movements in uh, stock prices, there's an arbitrage opportunity that, um, you know, financial market uh, participants, we will be able to arbitrage away uh, any of that uh, expected fluctuation. So the stock prices essentially follow more of that random walk. Uh, over time, but there's no regularity in the in the data. But compare that uh, with um, the employment data. This is payroll employment. The blue line is the uh, unadjusted data. That's the raw form of uh, employment data that uh, go, goes through regular ups and downs. And the peaks and troughs that you see intra-year are uh, all, almost always falling at around the same time. Right, and that makes it uh, easily predictable. That, of course, is a relative term. Uh, the seasonally adjusted data, after you remove that predictable uh, seasonal portion, you're left with the red line, which then is much smoother. The uh, ups and downs are clearer. The turning points are much uh, better articulated. So uh, business economists are used to seeing charts like this, the shaded areas are the uh, recessions um, in the US in uh, 2001 and then uh, 2008, 2009 in this chart. Um, and uh, you see how much uh, uh, more um, the red line corresponds to the, uh, the shaded area, the recession uh, that's shown by the re uh, shaded area. Now, the other thing to note is the arrows. If you look at the peak of the recessions, not seasonally adjusted data, looks like it peaks uh, well in advance of the recession. Um, so it doesn't align very well with the true beginning of the recession. Um, and that could be very uh, confusing for a real-time analysis uh, or even historical analysis. Now, here we're looking at an individual variable, but as I mentioned, composite indexes are also very useful to, um, uh, to look at a lot of economic data um, and help us to see an unobserved business cycle uh, 
components in the data. Uh, so with the composite indexes, um, we're able to summarize a lot of different uh, indicators into a single number that will get us closer to that stylized view of the business cycle that we saw at the beginning. So the cycles and the turning points are more in, in focus and they're helpful for real-time monitoring. Um, but if we include uh, the seasonality in the data, obviously that's gonna create a type of volatility in the composite indexes. So before we uh, create a composite index, we always seasonally adjust the data um, so that there's kind of that uh, uh, pre-transformation that begins to bring out the seasonal, uh, the cyclical movement. In addition to other uh, steps in index methodology that deflates the data, does volatility adjustments, uh, and then aggregates uh, the various components with, uh, with equal weights. But the key here is that seasonally adjustment is almost always the first step. Now, composite in indexes have many variables. They're selected from a much larger pool of data, you know, the business cycle indicators data set that was developed at the BEA in the 60s has over 270 indicators. Uh, the leading economic index for the US has only 10. So um, how did those resources go from over 250 to 10? Uh, they apply a number of selection criteria that go from the economic significance of the variable. Um, is it theoretically meaningful? Does it conform to the cycle? Is it consistent? Is it smooth? Is the statistical data collection or the survey methodology appropriate and adequate? And is the data available in a timely uh, manner? So when you think about it, um, all of these criteria can be affected if there is strong seasonality in the data. That strong seasonality can, um, uh, can reduce the conformity of the underlying variable. Um, it may, it could make the timing less consistent and so on. So obviously also less smooth. So here is a composite index uh, of leading indicators in the red line. And again, the shaded areas are the recessions going back to 1959. Um, and um, this is a lot closer to that stylized abstract view of the business cycle that we saw at the beginning uh, than individual uh, components of the index. The blue line is the coincident index. That's the four uh, economic variables that the MBER Business Cycle Dating Committee uses to determine um, uh, the business cycle beginnings and endings. Um, and that conforms very closely with the shaded areas and the leading indicator leads uh, the turning points in the, the shaded areas recessions and also leads the coincident indicators. Um, so in our business cycle analysis, we're trying to uh, get to a picture like this, but seasonality is going to create a lot more, um, uh, I don't want to call it noise because seasonality is meaningful, um, but it's not uh, relevant to this objective of clarifying the, the cyclical view so that we can then talk about the cyclical interactions, cyclical relationships between the variables. Um, okay, so seasonally adjusted data then allows us to look at composite indexes like this. And then we can go a step further and use 
economic indicators or composite indexes to look at different cyclical episodes over time, historically. Um, and that can also be insightful to tell us um, how is this cycle different from previous cycles historically. Um, and in this chart, here's a, an example of the coincident index, which is again, those four variables that the NBER is looking at uh, for determining the chronology of the visit cycle. Um, and um, it's indexed to the trough month. Uh, so the dark blue line is the coincident index indexed to the trough month for the uh, 2009 June trough. Um, and the light blue line is the average of previous uh, or all uh, coincident indexes all around all of those uh, recession troughs historically. So the average is a lot smoother. It gives us an average profile of what a business cycle uh, trough, um, it's um, uh, the period leading up to it is, looks like, and the period afterwards looks like. So you have, a, you see a very clear recovery in the light blue line, but the, uh, the coincident index after the June 2009 um, uh, trough uh, started to recover, but that recovery was a lot slower compared to the average recovery in, uh, in the business cycle. So that this kind of historical uh, comparison can be also uh, very useful for business cycle analysis uh, to understand where are we in relation to, to the trough? How, how fast is the recovery? Is it going as expected or is it really showing us uh, risks? Are our assumptions about the recovery correct uh, on point or not? We can follow that with the leading indicator um, and the same type of uh, graph that's indexed to the trough month. Um, and the average is the light blue. Again, the leading, uh, the, the trajectory of the leading index after the, uh, before and after the trough in 2009 was perhaps a little bit more uh, similar to the, the average, especially after, uh, certainly not before, a much more uh, uh, rapid decline in the, in the leading index uh, leading up to uh, during the recession. So that tells you the recession was much, much deeper than the average recession. But the recovery looked, followed roughly the same uh, trajectory. Uh, um, so those were the composite indexes and uh, we can, through the historical comparisons, we can really get a, a better understanding of that uh, relative strength uh, or weakness of the recovery period or the recession period. Um, and then we can apply that same kind of uh, uh, analysis to individual indicators or individual components. And you can see how the components vary relative to the average view of the, the business cycle. Uh, here, uh, the charts show a comparison between different episodes, uh, a different recovery uh, episodes uh, for employment. Uh, going back to uh, the 1960s. And you, you see how the trajectory is wildly different. Uh, again, going back to the composite indexes, they help to, they can help to kind of uh, uh, aggregate these together to uh, see a more uh, clearer picture. So this would be a good spot to uh, pause and see if there are any questions or comments. Um, and uh, Maureen, I don't know if uh, you have any comments uh, for our discussion. 
Uh, yes, actually, um, I'm being told I can't start my video. I'm sorry. There you are. Um, but um, in any of them, we have had uh, a couple of questions come in. And um, before I turn to them, let me just invite everyone um, you know, to submit questions as they come to mind. Uh, so, uh, Ottoman, the first question is whether AI, as well as climate change, will have any impact on cycles? Uh, that's, a, that's a very big question, the million dollar yes, question. Yes, I know. Uh, <laughs> So maybe we can take them one at a time, and I'll I'll, I'll let you know what I, I think. And I, you know, I should just say that this is really uh, evolving in, in in a way. But in terms of uh, climate change, um, I think it's likely to create sort of structural breaks in economic data. So to the extent that the economic data is affected by um, climate, we may start to see differences in the long-term trends. Um, and that could be also complicated by uh, the uh, climate change creating uh, sort of more frequent uh, and more violent uh, storms, for example. And um, so while that's not uh, necessarily uh, directly seasonal in the way that we understand it, the hurricane season uh, becoming longer and maybe more violent uh, is um, akin to seasonality. So it could create uh, difficulties in estimating it forward, uh, going forward, because the estimation of the seasonal factors relies on historical data, and the future is going to look very different from, uh, from the historical data. So that's the impact of climate change, uh, likely impact. Um, the, the impact of AI might be uh, more difficult uh, to, to assess. Uh, it's still in very early uh, stages um, and um, uh, it can affect the long-term uh, growth trends in the economy uh, if it improves productivity to such a greater extent that economies become more efficient and more innovative. So the long-term growth trend uh, increases. Um, and we know that when you have uh, higher growth trends, uh, turning points do get affected. So economies uh, that have uh, higher long-term average growth uh, may not experience business cycles in the way that we're, we're used to seeing them. Um, and maybe an analogy is the post-World War II era. Um, and uh, in Europe, um, before the World War, um, very similar to the US, there were recurrent business cycles, recessions and expansions. But post-World War II, the European continent was destroyed. There was a lot of recovery and rebuilding uh, from the ground up, you know, rebuilding cities uh, altogether. So in the decades following the World War, 50s, 60s, you didn't see uh, the usual recessions or business cycles. And that was because the long-term uh, average growth of those economies increased and at a higher growth rate, you don't see the contractions. Uh, you have to go to a different concept, uh, growth cycles, which uh, is beyond the scope here. But um, I think if AI has an effect on the long-term growth trajectory of the economy, 
it will affect uh, the maybe length, uh, duration of expansions, the location of the turning points, and maybe it'll take us back to a time when we see fewer uh, recessions or shorter and milder recessions. We don't know. One question. The conference board is noted for their forward-looking indicators uh, compared to lagging indicators, the leading indicators. Um, what percent of the time are these forward-looking indicators correct? If these indicators are available uh, to most people, are they of the consensus? Um, so each individual component in the leading index and various other leading indicators, they all have different uh, lead times. There's uh, variability in that. Um, and uh, I think the, 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 the proportion of the time that they're correct is going to vary a lot from uh, uh, component to component or variable to variable. Uh, but in the composite indexes, you see a lot more regularity in those lead times. Um, and the composite index, the leading index has an average um, lead time of about 12 months. Um, and even though for each recession that lead vary, varies, Historically, it has uh, shown a lot of consistency in that. So I hope uh, that answers uh, that question. Uh, uh, what high frequency data does the conference board look at and is it readily available to attendees? Uh, so I, I will refer you to the conference board. Uh, you can visit their website and uh, you can find some of the data there. Uh, you can also uh, find uh, a lot of the data from government agencies and, and other uh, sources like Haver Analytics. Uh, you will be able to see the data uh, through those sources. Uh, the high frequency data um, is the usual suspects uh, from uh, labor markets or production, uh, national income accounts, um, and uh, money and credit aggregates, um, price uh, information, and also some inter international uh, trade data that uh, that's available. Um, and uh, over the decades, these are these are uh, by economists. <clears throat> these have been um, analyzed, and we have the stylized facts in terms of how those relationships work, right? So naturally, if you look at things like new orders or housing permits, those are going to be leading because they occur before the productive or construction activity happens. So um, uh, those are the types of high frequency data uh, that you can find in these data sets. I think looking at the clock, we should move on to your next session. Such great, and I'm sure I'm sure we'll have more questions, and uh, we'll take those as they come in. Sure. Uh, let me go back to sharing. Um, okay. So okay, so let's talk a little bit about how uh, adjustment uh, methodologies work. Um, Maureen mentioned that you know in the early days they didn't have computers they were doing this you know painstaking work by hand 
um, and it's it's not so straightforward to estimate these uh, uh, econometric statistical models to uh, estimate seasonal factors and so on. Um, and a common way to remove seasonality is to look at year-over-year -year changes. And this is, you see this with business data all the time. Um, you look at uh, the, the, the change over the previous 12 months. And immediately that's going to take away the seasonal effect, the seasonal part of the data. You're comparing apples with apples, December with last previous December, January with previous January. So automatically uh, that smooths the data, gives you a growth rate. Uh, you know, inherently that's um, intuitively understandable. Um, but that type of a year over year change is, is not um, good enough for the objective of business cycle analysis. Um, and the main reason for that is that it creates a phase shift problem. And the chart uh, that demonstrates uh, this problem, um, I took the same employment data and um, I'm showing the year over year percent change in both the seasonally adjusted version of that data and the not seasonally adjusted version. So if you apply the year over year change to not seasonally adjusted, you end up essentially identical to the seasonally adjusted data. So why not just take the seasonal, uh, seasonal adjustment by year over year growth rates? Uh, you could do that. You'll end up with a smooth series like this that fluctuates, but it doesn't match the business cycle recession chronology that um, uh, that we agree is the recession and expansion dates. Um, the employment data turns down uh, much, much, much before the recession begins. So that would be very misleading. Um, it also starts rising perhaps after uh, the recession ends. So that's, again, in terms of real-time analysis of the short-term trend, this phase shift problem um, is uh, going to be uh, an issue if you're interested in the turning points of the data. So over the years, going back to the work uh, of the Commerce Department um, at BLS and other agencies, um, these time series decomposition methods have been uh, developed to provide a solution to remove seasonality and really reveal the trend cycle um, that looks like the, the first uh, abstract graphing uh, that, that we looked at. So um, the, the assumptions are that there are unobserved components in the, the data that uh, you're collecting. Uh, the first one is a trend cycle the long-term growth trajectory combined with the cyclical movement. Uh, the second one is a seasonal, uh, regular seasonal movement. And then there's also a short-term irregular movement that might occur over a month, two months, or three months, very short-term. So we assume that the data generating process is really made up of these unobserved components. And then we can estimate uh, the, the, uh, the trend and the seasonal factor um, basically by decomposing the raw data, the actual data, that's Y, into its three components. The way you can approach the econometric sort of estimation is you can write the model as a multiplicative form or as an additive form. Um, and, um, and you see the, the, the difference there. There are sort of nuances um, and different models might be appropriate to different 
different uh, types of data. And at different times, a, a different approach might be more, uh, more appropriate. As we saw with the uh, uh, UI claims data that uses the additive approach uh, during the pandemic year uh, for a number of months. And then the factors are uh, now back to estimating the usual way, which was the multiplicative. Um, but the seasonal adjustment takes away uh, the, the wild movements that you see in the red line. This is retail sales. Um, and then the seasonally adjusted data obviously is a lot smoother. Uh, you know, this same kind of um, uh, application uh, helps with uh, almost all seasonal uh, economic data. This example is um, housing units started now, I brought this here to show that seasonal adjustment smooths the data, but it does, it's not, uh, uh, it doesn't turn the data into a perfectly smooth data. You, you would still see fluctuations, but the fluctuations that you see are uh, due to the, the economic functionings of the housing market uh, rather than the predictable uh, seasonal parts. Uh, and, you see how large the seasonal movements are. So they could be very problematic in terms of interpreting how strong the data is. But in some cases, you might want to look at the uh, not adjusted data if uh, you're interested in um, uh, forecasting demand for your business or inventory levels for your business. Um, seasonality through the uh, seasonal adjustment through the smoothing tells you what the general business cycle trend, the business cycle factors at play are. But for your specific individual business, it might be more important for your objective. Uh, if you're in airlines or if you're in utilities uh, that you, you want to forecast uh, you know, demand levels, maybe you want to consider the seasonality in the data. And then knowing how that seasonality is different from the general trend is also going to be insightful. Uh, and the seasonal adjustment methods, statistical methods that were uh, developed uh, at the Census Bureau and other statistical agencies around the world um, gave us sort of the international gold standard with the, the Census X-12, which has been over the decades have been uh, continued to evolve and, and develop. Now we're, we're looking at Census X-13 uh, and it's been combined with the Tremosets um, uh, approach that was uh, developed by Gomez and Maraval that incorporates more time series uh, ARIMA estimation into the model. There are also other purely model-based uh, approaches like signal extraction. Uh, these, these go back to the 70s and 80s, and you can also use sort of the time series ARIMA decompositions uh, as well. So there's a lot of different methods to, to choose from. Generally, I think the, the Census X13 uh, Trimoseats is now considered the international standard. Uh, and I've included some links uh, with uh, resources uh, and the statistical agencies uh, do excellent work in this. And it's uh, the metadata is beautifully documented. The programs are available uh, and those are also incorporated into many uh, statistical packages. So very easy to, to use. Um, and uh, I would really encourage you to, when you have some free time to dig into uh, some of this documentation to understand better uh, how how uh, this is done. Um, so uh, we probably have time for maybe one or two questions and then sure. we'll move to the last part. 
Yes, actually, uh, you mentioned some of the challenges during COVID, and perhaps we'll leave those to uh, your final part. Um, but we also have a question about how to deal with seasonality uh, from non-traditional source data, like web scrape data, uh, sentiment data, all this sort of not not the kind of data that we get usually from statistical agencies. That's a, that's a great question. And I think, especially since the pandemic, um, uh, but also because of the advent of you know, predictive analytics and big data, we have many more sources of this non-traditional, sometimes administrative data. Um, and um, potentially, those are also subject to seasonal movements too, and especially since they give us a lot of high frequency data. So we should be very mindful to see whether we are seeing these types of regular movements that are happening around the same time or at the same time uh, in our calendar year. Um, and uh, now I think uh, one caution or caveat is um, to, to be able to apply these uh, methods that have been developed, we generally need at least three years of data to be able to put it through a statistical model to estimate uh, seasonal factors. And some of those newer non-traditional sources don't have enough history for us to be able to do that. Um, so you might have to rely on uh, moving averages uh, or maybe non-traditional ways to kind of think about what's seasonal, what's regular, what's part of the trend. Uh, and uh, so moving averages can help you uh, to do that, uh, but you wouldn't be able to apply these seasonal uh, adjustment methods uh, uh, at, until you have at least three years of data. And that becomes problematic with newly generated uh, data sources. Um, so Anuman, let's just go ahead and uh finish up your final slides because I think some of these challenges are the most interesting part. Yes, I think we'll, we'll uh, touch on some of those challenges here. Um, and uh, generally speaking, we can rely on statistical agencies to provide the best seasonally adjustments uh, that's, that's possible. They spend uh, a lot of resources and time. They understand their data really well. Um, but even then, I think we should still watch out for some of the issues that might be creeping in uh, to seasonally adjusted data. Um, and uh, it's important to be very mindful that the seasonal, seasonality is appropriately removed um, and uh, new sort of movements in the economy are uh, not really um, uh, dependent on that seasonality, but really we're seeing an economic relationship. Um, aggregation or deflation of economic indicators and other transformation of the data can introduce seasonality. So even if you think you're working with seasonal, uh, seasonally adjusted data, you go through some indexing or aggregation or some other deflation and use price indexes that are not adjusted, you might end up with seasonality in your data that's going to cloud your judgments. Um, moving holidays, we touched on this a little bit. If uh, holidays are based on the lunar 
uh, New Year, for example, in terms of in, uh, in the case of Chinese data, many Chinese data series uh, could be very strong patterns. Uh, they could move between the end of January or early February, and uh, this all, all, this makes it also uh, difficult to uh, to do the adjustment and then interpret the, the data. Um, the real-time analysis of the short-term trend uh, it can be distorted uh, by uh, the seasonality, um, and uh, and then the estimation of seasonal adjust the seasonal ad adjustment factors or estimation of seasonality can be affected by outliers. So you know the 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 impact could come from both sides. Seasonality can affect your inference and uh, interpretation of the data. But it, if there are outliers uh, in the data, as we saw with the pandemic period, um, huge outliers uh, because of you know the shutdown in the economies, uh, can create a uh, distortion in the historical estimation, and that's going to be problematic. Uh, and uh, in some cases, we do want to look at not, not adjusted data to get a clearer view or compare the NSA and SA versions uh, of the data. Um, and when you're using the seasonally adjusted data, uh, you could reduce data quality uh, because there are estimate, potentially estimation errors. Um, seasonally adjusted data is further transformed by estimated seasonal factors. So be mindful of that. Um, and seasonally adjusted data could show spurious relationships between two variables where uh, those relationships uh, are really not there. They're just coming up because there's a smooth trend in both, both series and parameters could be biased and so, so on and so forth. So Chris Sims offered a solution to, to uh, partly uh, address this issue Make sure that your uh, the data you're using in your variables uh, is seasonally adjusted by, by using the same filter. So there are different methodologies out there produced, especially for international data. Um, different types of uh, seasonal adjustment filters could create and introduce these biases and errors. So one way to overcome that is make sure you use the same methodology on all your variables. Um, and uh, the unadjusted data, because of the wild uh, amplitudes, the swings, could overstate the dependence between the variables because it looks like a common pattern, but they're only moving at the same time because of uh, a holiday uh, in December, Christmas. Uh, but conceptually, there may not be a relationship between those two variables. Um, so uh, we talked a little bit about this all already also. So mindful of the time. Um, another uh, drawback from seasonal adjustment is um, the frequency and the size of data revisions could increase. Um, and um, you know, seasonal adjustment factors are estimated based on historical data. Historical data is revised. Factors are going to be revised, and then your uh, adjusted data is going to be revised. And um, you know, when you see those revisions, is it really new information that's coming in, or it's a, it's a updating of the seasonal uh, factors? Uh, so that's a good question uh, to ask yourself when you're using this. Um, there could there could be things like even in seasonally adjusted data, we could 
see re residual seasonality, we could see moving seasonality. Um, and whether you're looking at disaggregate data or aggregate data uh, could yield different views. One way to address this um, is to um, indirectly seasonally adjust um, the disaggregate data and then aggregate it. Um, and then test whether the aggregate has seasonality or not. Um, or you could aggregate the data regardless of uh, seasonal movements and then uh, directly seasonally adjust the aggregate data. So different approaches, um, but depending on which approach is used, uh, there could be some biases or some errors. Uh, so it's good to ask these questions of the statistical agencies. How did you seasonally adjust it? Did you apply an indirect adjustment or a direct adjustment? Um, and then again, be mindful of uh, the uh, estimation and seasonal adjustment. Always look at the NSA data. Um, and often you see economists kind of debating whether seasonal adjustment is sufficient or not. You know, if we have a really harsh winter, the historical pattern of seasonal adjustment may not be sufficiently removing the uh, uh, seasonal effect. Um, so you end up looking at data that's worse than average, but that's only because of a, a very harsh uh, outlier winter, for example. So, so in summary, we went through a, a lot of material, um, but uh, I, the key point is that we see seasonality in economic data across the board, um, but seasonality is very common and it's highly predictable. Being highly predictable, it makes sense to remove it to arrive at a predictable pattern and that predictable uh, uh, remove the predictable pattern to re reveal the underlying trend and cycle, which is what we're interested in for business cycles. Um, and adjustment is necessary when you know, you're doing analysis for policy reasons, for business or economic reasons. Um, and uh, it gives you a clearer view of the short-term trends, the short-term trajectory of the economy. And after you do the adjustment, it's much easier to understand past signals, cycles, make comparisons uh, compared to the past uh, uh, profile of the cycle, and also predict the future cycle, uh, regardless of what seasonal uh, seasonality there is. So let's end there. Maybe there, uh, there's time for one or two questions. Um, yes, we have um, a participant from a public utility that says they always worry about seasonally adjusted data and are seeking other sources that are unadjusted and are asking for your recommendation. <laughs> um... Uh, I, I think it's right to worry about it because a seasonal adjustment could smooth the data too much, so you could underestimate uh, the, the load on the, on the system, for example, um, or you might be, you might end up underestimating, um, you know, how much inputs you need for, for the production of energy. Uh, if, if that's the right utility. Um, so that it's a very legitimate question. Uh, in terms of sources, uh, many of the uh, statistical agencies also provide the NSA data. Um, so you can look at them side by side, if necessary, do your own adjustments uh, and do the comparison and that's, that's useful. It's always a good idea to 
to get in touch with the agency, uh, the direct source, and find out uh, if they make that data available. Sometimes it's not published, but it may be available if you ask. So I would go to uh, the uh, original data source uh, and ask for that. And uh, there's generally demand for that type of data, and many agencies will, will provide it. Yes, at the end of the day, you don't get seasonally adjusted data too often without some unadjusted data to start with. Uh, so one final question. Uh, there was some controversy um, uh, concerning concurrent seasonal adjustment and uh, the more traditional way of projecting seasonal factors a year ahead. Yeah. Um, with COVID, are we, you know, we have the echoes coming through from COVID. Um, which is better now going forward? Or do you have an opinion on that? Yeah, I, I think um, it's an empirical question, uh, but it's definitely a caveat to, to, to worry about um, whether in concurrent uh, adjustments, you're continually, um, estimating the, uh, the factors as new data comes in. Um, and um, that estimation is affected by the outlier in our recent past, I and mean, now more than three years ago, but it's still in the recent past. So un until it may perhaps it moves further back in the history, it's something, the, the question uh, is legitimate to ask. Um, but I think in the end of the day, it's going to vary case by case, depending on the variable. So I don't have a general answer for it. Um, and uh, I think we'll, we'll keep seeing that echo effect, uh, but I, different variables might reflect it differently. It might die out faster in one variable versus another variable. Um, so definitely keep a watchful eye. Okay, well, we've run out of time, but we still have the EMS coming up, and uh, this will be a topic of discussion, I'm sure, uh, at many of the data sessions, uh, unemployment and prices and so on. So uh, thank you very much for attending our webinar, and I look forward to seeing you at this year's EMS. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of eConversations with NAEB. We hope to see you at the 20th anniversary of the NAEB Foundation Economic Measurement Seminar, July 17th and 18th at the Four Seasons Hotel in Washington, D.C. EMS provides the unique opportunity to learn about federal agency data directly from the producers of the data. Pairing the data producer with a data user, the seminar provides a comprehensive picture of the importance and different uses of economic measurement today. If you've previously attended, we encourage you to come back for track these sessions, spend some time exploring measurement on hot topics such as consumer sentiment, the energy revolution, housing affordability, manufacturing wages, consumer spending, and the debt crisis. Please visit need.com slash EMS 2023 for more information and to register.